That is still a catchy theme tune. Welcome, revelers and weirdos, to Scaring Sam, where I subject my beautiful, ever-hangry fiancé to scary movies, testing the limits of her nerves and likely our relationship, in hopes that one day she will come to love and appreciate the horror genre as much as we do. I like to call it exposure therapy for cinephiles. I'm James Reese, and once again, Sam is not present. Believe it or not, she's out there, protecting all of us when night falls and evil rises. And the undead seek out their unsuspecting prey. Sam is there to defend us all from the unholy evil that lurks there in the darkness. Don't believe me? All right, clearly you're not an open-minded individual. But all this, ooh, I'm scared of movies. I'm scared of spiders and ghosts and tiny ginger men. That's all a front. Clearly, that is all a ridiculous, very transparent front to masquerade Sam's true motives and intentions, protecting us all from vampires and ghoulies and ghosties with her trained, merciless army of cats. You know, girl power. What am I talking about? No idea. Anyway, we are knee-deep in our King Month, where we celebrate the man, the myth, the legend. Yes, that is Stephen King. He needs no applause. He needs no introduction. Yes, he is Stephen King. We all know the name. We all know the face. We all know his work. And we, here at Scaring Sam, we are exploring this man's work through the medium of film and the TV series. Well, mostly film. And this week, we're covering Salem's Lot. The 1979 miniseries directed by horror legend Toby Hooper, director of The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, Poltergeist, and a bunch of other stuff we, you know, you might enjoy, you might not. And Salem's Lot was only Stephen King's second published novel after Carrie. King has stated numerous times that Salem's Lot was his favourite out of all of his books, I mean, I don't know what that says about the rest of his career or how he thinks about it, but mm, I don't know. It's not my place to judge. He was inspired by Dracula, one of the books covered in the course he was teaching at the Hampton Academy. I mean, could you imagine attending a course taught by King? I suppose at the time he just thought he was just some you know, teacher who was obsessed with Maine. And I guess this is the book that cemented that you should never, ever go to Maine because some crazy-ass shit is going to come down upon you. And I'm not going to wrap up everything with the plot this time around. I'm just going to go through it because, oh my, oh yes, we have got so much to cover. So you've got kind of like a prologue at the start, which begins in a church in Guatemala where David Soul and a kid are collecting holy water, which begins to glow blue. Presumably, this happens when vampires are close by, and the two mention someone has found them. But that's all we get, because it jumps back two years earlier, where David Soul's character, Ben, arrives in Salem's lot, Maine. And of course, this is the 70s, so already I have to contend with the big hair and the big collars of this era. And Ben drives up to a long road... Apparently, just to stare at the Marsden house. And you get used to David So staring off into the distance at this house for pretty much the first hour 
of the TV series. We later learn that Ben moved away when he was 11. Even back then, the Marsden house had a reputation for being haunted because every small town has their own haunted house that stories build up around. And Ben went up there one time as a dare. He believed he witnessed the ghost of who be Marsden hanging. And a lot of mysterious deaths and child disappearances revolve around the house. Its entire history is steeped in the darkness. To such an extent, it is said the Marsden house has an evil presence and clearly draws evil in like a moth to the flame. And Ben, as we later learn, has returned to write about the house that still haunts him. But right now we just have this sweaty David soul just staring up at a house and then having a staring contest with James Mason. And I've got to take credit for this mini-series. I mean, it has aged well because I believe, I mean, I should have researched this, but I'm pretty certain they threw a lot of money at this adaptation of Salem's Lot. It has a pretty decent cast and the supporting cast is filled with a very young, late, great Fred Willard, who I almost didn't recognise as he's so young here. Even his distinct voice isn't even present at this time. And then you have, oh, that guy from William Castle's House on Haunted Hill and Roger Coleman's The Haunted Palace. I had to look up his name. Eliza Cook Jr., who clearly his entire career must have been carried by the whites of his eyes. He has such an expressive face. And he had over 218 acting credits to his name. That's an impressive long career. And I guess he's one of those actors where you don't know his name, but you instantly recognise his face. And if I'm being honest, I feel you could probably shave off the running time by cutting out most of this first hour. I know you've got to establish the town and its residents before they begin to be picked off by Barlow, the vampire. But this could have been achieved quickly than it was here. In a few fleeting moments of horror to this point, that's where you really notice Toby Hooper behind the camera. Otherwise, the rest of the time his presence isn't felt. I mean, you have David Sells' Ben. You have him attempting to chat up Susan after noticing she's reading his book. And it must be a page-turner as she's stopped to draw instead. She read another of his books, but she can't even remember the name of that one. But despite, clearly, the impressive credibility of Ben's writing, he still asks her out to dinner. And I start wondering to myself... Do writers try this in real life? And clearly it works because Ben scores that night after his date with Susan. So, hey, you know, sing when you're winning. So like I said, you've got Fred Willard here. A very, very young Fred Willard playing Crockett, who's the realtor of Salem's Lot, who through him, Barlow's little familiar, I mean, do vampires have... Human familiars, you know, the guy who does all the dirty work during the daytime, Stracker, he purchased the Marsden house through Crockett. And he seems to be doing all these little side jobs to appease his client. Because at no point does Crockett question Strucker's order to procure four stout padlocks. Leave all four keys in the basement and padlock the bulkhead door, the front door, the back door, and the shed garage as his men leave the house. Maybe it's my suspicious nature, but I would question that order. Unless I got paid handsomely, and then, hmm, I might turn a blind eye. 
And speaking of supporting characters, you've got this groundskeeper for the local, what, church? Or just the graveyard? And he looks a dead spit for William H. Macy. I had to literally double-check the cast to confirm it wasn't him, just in case William H. Macy was, in fact, an immortal vampire. Well, like I said, there's fleeting moments of horror in this first hour. You have this snarling dog who's killed outside the church, which I think is William H. Macy's dog, while this heavy, cold, quote-unquote, sideboard is loaded up from the docks by Crockett's Men for Hire. And of course, anyone who has seen a vampire story knows this is Barlow arriving. So, who killed the dog? Why? Is it just because he's a yapping dog who's going to alert people to, I know, Barlow's presence? Who knows, but clearly Strucker killed the dog. And you get this nice little jump scare of this shadowy figure rising up to grab a kid in the woods. But... I mean, come on, guys, it's three hours long. There's a little bit of padding here and there, which mostly involves David Soule staring out the window to the Marsden house. And I'm not trying to be critical of Toby Hooper, but anyone could be sitting behind that camera in these quiet, somewhat soap opera moments when you're introduced to all these characters and they're Daily comings and goings in Salem's lot, where, ooh, the housewife is cheating on the realtor behind her douchey, chunky, binge-drinking husband. Speaking of, the first hour ends with a shotgun-wielding husband storming in on his wife in bed with Crockett. And this is quite an intense scene. George Dzunjza? Good God, that is a surname and a half who plays the husband, Cully, he portrays this unhinged, oafish man perfectly here as he drunkenly threatens Crockett with glee. And Crockett flees in just his silk boxers, because it's the 70s, when he discovers that the shotgun is empty, only to come face to face with Barlow, who's escaped the confines of his clearly flimsy wooden crate, which at this point has now been delivered to the basement of the Marsden house, and his little assistant, Strucker, delivers an unconscious boy, Ralphie, to him. And it's a shame, because that's pretty much what we see of Fred Willard in this TV series. He's later discovered by Ben and Susan by the lake, while they're, you know, on the verge of bumping uglies, and he's found dead in his car but he doesn't even get the credit of being turned into a vampire later on, like the rest of the townsfolk. And then you finally get the sight of your first vampire, and it's this little boy. And finally, things start to build up, start to gain momentum, as we finally see our first real sight of a vampire. And it's that classic, memorable scene with the vampire boy, Ralphie, floating outside the window, and it's such a striking image, especially in stark contrast to the normality that permeates the story for the first hour. And it's unfortunate that it is such a memorable scene that I was already aware of before I had even seen Salem's Lot. But it's still effective. The dreamlike quality, the boy's glowing white eyes and that creepy smile, the way he floats outside scratching at the windowpane, 
is pure nightmare fuel. And I wonder how it would be seen through fresh eyes. And that's why I need Sam beside me watching horror. She literally watches all these classics with the innocence of a baby deer. I mean, a baby deer, you know, in the headlights, but you know the metaphor. You get what I mean. And I think it's around this point where Ben believes his return was the catalyst for the evil that has suddenly struck Salem's lot. Why? Don't know. It's an interesting concept, but it's never given any credence. So we chalk this up to coincidence and nothing more. Except maybe the narcissism of a writer who has two clearly very forgettable novels. And at this point... You know, vampire boy Ralphie has claimed his first victim, his older brother Danny. And it's while filling in the grave, the church's groundkeeper, Discount William H. Macy, is lured by Danny Glick inside the coffin to be freed so that he may feed and spread the vampirism throughout the town. And personally, I've never cared for vampires having the power to hypnotise their victims. I always found it rather theatrical like I'm watching a flamboyant West End performance. And sorry for the pun, but after what we do in the shadows took the right piss out of it, for me that was the last nail in the coffin for that motif. Coffin. Vampires. Ho 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 ho. Moving on. And this is when things start to escalate, they start to build momentum, thankfully, in a three hour long TV miniseries. And it's the sight of vampire discount William H. Macy in the rocking chair, Eyes glowing out from the shadows. It's impressive. But it mm, loses its power the second he speaks. Look at me, teacher. Look. I think I prefer my vampires silent and deadly. Like my farts. And it's straight after this scene, we get our first proper look at Kurt Barlow. When he attacks Susan's douchey ex in his police cell. It's still a genuinely decent jump scare after all these years. And Barlow's appearance, all demonic Nosferatu, blue skin, claws and snarling, animalistic growls, it still holds up today. And it's around this point where Father Callahan is introduced. Almost as an afterthought in this miniseries, he's a simple necessity to the plot to have a man of faith combat the forces of evil. But as with Callahan, we have our first connection to Stephen King's shared universe. Before Marvel popularised the premise and made it a lucrative film franchise, King had already created the Dark Tower universe. Callahan would later find himself in this strange realm after leaving Salem's Lot for New York, where he now hunts vampires after gaining the power to sense them. Here, though, Callahan is part of the most wild, bombastic scene in the series. While conferring with the Petries, I guess that's how you pronounce it, over their son Mark's fascination with horror and the macabre, I mean, what's wrong with that? The house suddenly shakes as if the town is being struck by an earthquake, only for this black mass to burst through the kitchen window and land on the floor, only to reveal itself to be Barlow. It's a great moment until Barlow clunks Mark's parents' heads together like they're reenacting a scene from the Three Stooges. I mean, was Sam Raimi guest directing this scene? Barlow was meant to have broken their necks here, but it comes off as more comical than brutal. You really have to see it for yourself to understand. 
It's becoming clear now how events are rapidly spiralling out of control, paving the way for some great unsettling and grotesque moments. There's this foreboding sense of dread as the townsfolk are haunted by the same dream. Marjorie Gleek returning from the dead on the morgue slab is a perfectly orchestrated tense scene where Hooper demonstrates how dab hand he is at horror, while David So shows some range while making a cross out of wooden lolly sticks. And you have Susan venturing into the Marsden house, finding it riddled with decay and stuffed animals. It's reminiscent of the house in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, only grander in size. All this leading to the final showdown with Ben and the surviving cast, facing off against Barlow and Stracker in the Marsden house. Susan's father, Bill, is quickly dispatched by Stracker, impaled against the wall of horns and antlers. Stracker in turn is shot dead by Ben, reminding me of that scene with Jerry Dandridge's familiar in Fright Night. Obviously now I can see the inspiration behind that scene. This leaves Ben and Mark to confront Barlow who's burrowed his way into the cliff and surrounded his coffin with the infected townsfolk. I love how gothic the Marsden house looks. It's a great layout. I kind of wish the rest of Salem's Lot had a far more distinct appearance than what was on offer. Anyways, Barlow is slain, as you typically expect a vampire to be, and for good measure, Ben and Mark burn the Marsden house down. Ben just assumes Susan has been turned before he lit the match. Luckily for him, she was, as he discovers two years later in Guatemala. Otherwise, that would have been awkward. And that's how the story ends, with Ben and Mark on the run from the surviving vampires, always trying to keep one step ahead of them for the rest of their lives. What a great upbeat ending, King. So what do I make of Salem's Lot? Personally, you could have probably shaved off an hour of the runtime and lose absolutely nothing other than David So staring up at the Marsden house. But it's tolerable if you keep in mind it's a mini-series and not a three-hour epic movie. Watch for the last hour. That's what everything builds up to. That's when Toby Hooper is let off his leash and bombards us with relentless horror. And I don't want to be one of these advocates who believe Spielberg shadow-directed Poltergeist instead of Hooper. But you can't deny it has that distinct Amblin sheen compared to any other of Hooper's work. Especially this film, and especially when it comes to the much lower budget attached to his free-picture deal with Canon. Seriously, go check out Life Force for some absolutely unhinged Toby Hooper batshit craziness. Space vampires. Patrick Stewart possessed by a sexy vampire lady from space. I'm not doing it any credit, just, you know, you know, check it out. Check it out. See what you think. And I think that's it. I think I've covered everything in regards to Salem's Lot. So what do you guys think of Salem's Lot? Worth a watch? Is it held up after all these decades? Is it a little bit long in the tooth for some of you? Let us know. We like to hear from you guys. So come, come, speak up, express your voice.
Anyway, on that bombshell, I'm James, and you've been listening to Scaring Sam. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at Scaring Sam Pod, and you can contact us at scaringsampod at gmail.com. And of course, stay safe out there tonight. Bye-bye now. <laughs> <laughs>